Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 6, America the Beautiful. Alright, today we're going to discuss Charles D. Evans's Visions, Patriarch of the Utah Stake, published in the uh, Contributor Magazine, I believe it was called, or the Instructor, 1894, a church magazine. In those days, um, I guess there was no offense given by people having visions and publishing them. So. <laughs> My vision now became extended in a marvelous manner, and the import of past labors of elders was made plain to me. I saw multitudes fleeing to our place of safety in the mountain heights that was established in the wilderness. Simultaneously, the nation had reached an unparalleled prosperity. Wealth abounded, new territory was acquired, commerce extended, finance strengthened, confidence was maintained, and people abroad pointed to her as a model nation. The ideal of the past now realized and perfected. The embodiment of the liberty which was sung by poets and sought for by ages, by sages, excuse me. So, pretty well, I think we've gone through that phase, and then the next phase, things turn. It's kind of like a movie. But, continued the messenger, thou beholdest the change, confidence is lost, wealth is arrayed against labor, labor against wealth, I guess you would say capital against unions, something like that. Yet the land abounds in plenty of food and raiment and silver and gold in abundance. Thou seest also the letters written by a Jew have wrought great conf confusion in the finance of the nations, which together with the policy of many wealthy ones has produced distress and do produce further sorrows. Factions now sprang up as if by magic. Capital had entrenched itself against labor and throughout the land labor was organized in opposition to capital. The voice of the wise sought to tranquilize their powerful fa factions or factors in vain. Excited multitudes ran wildly about. Strikes increased. Lawlessness, lawlessness sought a place in the regular government. So, question, are we there or are we getting there? We're <laughs> I would probably, I don't know who the Jew is. We'll know when it happens. It's like Isaiah when... In the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety. So in the days that, that this is fulfilled, we'll know of a surety, I'm sure. Uh, so this part hasn't happened yet, I would say. But I'm, I'm sure it has a connection with the Federal Reserve, wouldn't you? Just speculating, right? Okay, now we go to Isaiah chapter 19, which is an oracle concerning Egypt. And Egypt is a code name for America. There's no getting around that when you superimpose the... Prophecy of Isaiah on the end time. The only superpower or nation that fits Isaiah's description of ancient Egypt is end time America. An oracle concerning Egypt. When Jehovah enters Egypt riding on swift clouds, the idols of Egypt will rocket his presence and the Egyptians' hearts melt within them. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Remember, Isaiah's is an end time scenario. So this is also waiting to happen. But what does this conjure up in your minds, you know? The kind of things that, um, you know, that um, Spencer talks about in Visions of Glory, because many things that we're discussing today uh, also appear in Spencer's book. And 
the, the things that are in the Charles D. Evans's vision as well. Now, remember that Isaiah does not give timelines, so the next verse is not a timeline that follows after what you read in, read in verse 1. In fact, verse 1 I would look at as more like the preface to the chapter. And then it starts, you know what I'm saying? Chronologically, if somewhat. I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. They will fight brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, and state against state. Now, it was the prophet Joseph Smith that quoted this very verse referring to America. I believe it's in the teaching of the prophet Joseph Smith, but if it's not there, it's definitely somewhere prominent where the prophet Joseph pronounced that, speaking of this country, which is interesting because he must have understood that that prophecy from Isaiah referred to us. Egypt's spirit shall be drained from within. I will frustrate their plans, and they will resort to the idols, to spiritists, to mediums, and witchcraft. So you already see cult stuff going on in this country and in this church. And so those are the you know, mediums that people are going to look to for answers, and possibly to their little gadgets, as, as we mentioned last time in one of our other lectures. Then will I deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. A harsh ruler will subject them, says my Lord, Jehovah of hosts. Now the harsh ruler seems to be coming from within the, the nation of Egypt itself. So, you know, again, we can speculate and say, well, that could be martial law or something like that. And some kind of thing imposed upon this country. It reminds me of the Book of Mormon passage that talks about attempts to set up a king in the land which wouldn't be there unless there were actually going to be attempts to set up a king in the land at, at a time when there are secret combinations. Um, and also at a time when the kings and queens of the Gentiles begin serving as you know, foster fathers and nursing mothers to the house of Israel. So evil has to get to that point, as I mentioned before, and then good has to match it. And when each reaches its height, then the thing can happen. Then the Lord's end time work can begin. So this is coherent with, or you know, it agrees with the, the general scenario in Isaiah as a whole and also in other visions that people have seen. So verse 5, the waters of the lake shall ebb away as stream beds become desolate and dry. Well, of course, this is not solely literal. It can be literal because of droughts, but also waters represent waters of people, rivers of people and bodies of people. So think in a metaphorical sense what that could mean. The river shall turn foul, and Egypt's waterways recede and dry up. Reeds and rushes shall wither. Well, reeds and rushes are also, in the book of Isaiah, a metaphor for people. Vegetation adjoining canals and estuaries and all things sown along irrigation channels shall shrivel and blow away and be no more. So this reminds me of, say, the Depression, the Great Depression. Only this time it seems to be something much worse than the Great Depression in this land. Fishermen will deplore their lot. You could say, well, entrepreneurs or something like that. And, and anglers and canals bemoan themselves. Those who cast nets on waters will be in misery. Manufacturers of comb linen and the weavers of fine fabrics will be dismayed. The textile workers will know despair and all who work for wages suffer distress. Well, of course, 
all fabrics are made in China or wherever, somewhere other than the U.S., it seems. So that's already happened, literally, to a degree. And, uh, of course, it can also mean just generally representative of the economy. The economy is collapsing because textile was the main things, the, the main you know, um, business of, of ancient Egypt. So it would be representative of, of the, the economy. Now we go to the politics, the politicians of um, Egypt, Zoan being the political capital. So think Washington, D.C. The ministers of Zoan are utter fools. The wisest of Pharaoh, think of the um, president. The wisest of Pharaoh's advisors give absurd counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, we ourselves are as wise as the first rulers or the founding fathers, you might say. Where are you wise men indeed? Let them please tell you if they can discern it what Jehovah of hosts has in mind for Egypt. So, you know, they have their agenda, but the Lord has his agenda too. And they don't know what it is. They'll always be kept guessing what the Lord is going to do. Because he has a plan for Egypt. The ministers of Zoan have been foolish. The officials of Nof deluded. The heads of state have led Egypt astray. The Lord hath permeated them with the spirit of confusion. They have misled Egypt in all that it does, causing it to stagger like a drunkard into his vomit. And there shall be nothing the Egyptians can do about it, neither head nor tail, palm top or reed, which in another part of Isaiah defines the leadership of the people. The head, the head and tail, palm top and reed. So it gets, it gets to the point where it's beyond redemption. It's, it has to run its course unto total demise of, of Egypt. And remember what we read in connection with the 144,000 and the covenanters in Egypt. Remember that? There's also the good news here. The covenanters covenant with the Lord and keep their covenants. <clears throat> and they're the ones who kind of save the day. And it also said there that the Lord will smite Egypt and by smiting heal it because they will turn back. It will cause them to turn back to the Lord and uh, put them in remembrance of him. Now back to Charles D. Evans. At this juncture I saw floating in the air a banner whereupon was written bankruptcy, famine, floods, cyclones, blood, and plagues. Now we've seen these things, you know, before. Uh, sometimes one at a time, sometimes two at a time. But what this sounds like is going to be way worse, where they're all hitting together. Mad with rage, men and women rushed upon each other. Blood flowed in the streets of cities like water. So here you have, you know, the neighbor against neighbor, city against city, etc. Thousands of bodies lay unentombed in the streets. Men and women fell dead from terror inspired by fear. But this was the precursor of the bloody work on the morrow. All around lay the mournfulness of a past in ruins. Monuments erected to perpetuate the names of the noble and brave men were utterly, excuse me, were ruthlessly destroyed by combustibles. A voice now sounded these words, quote, Yet once again I shake not only the earth but also heaven, and this word once again signifies the removing of things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. That last sentence is loaded, but you understand, you get the idea, right? The things of Babylon, the things of the world, the things of man, they're all going to be shaken, and if they're not grounded in the Lord, 
based founded upon the rock and so forth, then they're all going to be removed. And it is on us then to get our acts together and to ascend on, a, on the spiritual ladder that Isaiah teaches to get to the point where we can't be shaken. The Lord is with us. And when the Lord is with you, then he leads you through all the destruction. Like the angels taking Lot out of destruction, Sodom. And the other scriptures that Isaiah talks about, walking through the fire and through the seas and through the rivers and through the destructions, through the fire. Isaiah 34, which is an oracle concerning Edom, captures this whole scene also. Remember that Edom, it means red. <clears throat> Edom was the name given to Esau and became identified with the nation of, e of Esau, the descendants of Esau. And it was adjoining the country of Israel. And it, it came to represent in Obadiah and also in Isaiah and other prophets, no doubt, the idea that there are those who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. Uh, Esau had the birthright. And who has the birthright today? We do, Ephraim, right? Joseph, yeah. Well, particularly Ephraim. Um, so if we don't live up to our birthright, we sell our birthright for a mess of pottage or the equivalent, then we're, we come under this category. Then we come under this condemned category of Edom. And it's part of the great, greater Babylon. It's part of the, the Babylon umbrella or the Babylon conglomerate that goes to destruction, it falls in the end time. And it's universal. But like I said, it, the, the universal destruction in Isaiah is always on the heels of what? The apostasy of God's own people. And we are they today. You can't get around that. It's as clear as day all through Isaiah and all through the scriptures, in fact. <clears throat> it's the pattern from the past. When God's people apostatized, then there was worldwide destruction in the days of the ten tribes and the days of the Jews when the Assyrians and later on the Babylonians became world powers and conquered the ancient world by military force. Verse 1, Come near you nations and hear, pay attention you peoples. Let the earth give heed and all who are upon it, the world and all who spring from it. So we better listen. And you know, you can tell people sometimes these things and they, they don't get it, they don't want to get it, they're happy the way they are. Don't tell me it makes me uncomfortable. Well, you're going to be made uncomfortable anyway, so you might as well be made uncomfortable now and deal with these things, and later on, when it's much worse, it's too late. Jehovah's rage is upon all nations, his fury upon all their hosts. He has doomed them, doomed them consigned them to the slaughter. Yeah, because all celestial peoples are going to go somewhere else. They're not going to remain when the millennium starts, the millennial age. They'll be out of here. The end of the world is the destruction of the wicked, as Joseph Smith defined, and as all the prophets define it. And the destruction of the wicked is the deliverance of the righteous, because there'll be no more wicked around to trouble the righteous. And then you have to define, well, who's the righteous then, and who's the wicked? Well, the wicked are all celestial beings, or worse, and perdition types, and the righteous are righteous by the Lord's definition, uh, which is, as I mentioned before, different from our self-righteous definition. 
And the words rage, fury, and slaughter are all keywords or code names for the end time king of Assyria, or the Antichrist of the, of the last days, who is the world conqueror. He and his alliance conquer the entire world. And the Lord uses them as his instrument. Their slain shall be flung out, and their corpses emit a stench. Well, that's what he saw. That's what um, Spencer saw. Their blood shall dissolve on the mountains. Can you imagine, you know, just corpses oozing everywhere, and the stench, and the, the disease, and the birds of prey feasting on them, and so forth. Their fat decompose on the hills. When the heavens are rolled up as a scroll, and their starry hosts shed themselves with one accord. Well, you know, like withered leaves from a fine vine or shriveled fruit from a fig tree. Well, you know, it depends what you mean by starry hosts. The stars are not going to come from other parts of the galaxy and mess things up here, but, uh, or planets are not going to come here unless, but very possibly meteors will come here, and asteroids cause great damage on the Earth. And also the weapons themselves could be like flying around in orbits, and then at a certain signal given, they could be coming down. Whatever the scenario is, I'm not saying that it's any of these things, but whatever the scenario is, it's something major. And Peter also talks about the heavens being up, rolled up as a scroll, and, and the apostles of Jesus' time get that from Isaiah. So much of their end-time scenario and their prophecies are based on Isaiah also, as Book of Mormon prophets' prophecies are based on Isaiah. When my sword drinks its fill in the heavens, it shall come down on Edom in judgment, on the people I have sentenced to damnation. And there you have a definition of who Edom is, or what Edom is. The people I have sentenced to damnation, anybody. Because by then the entire world was, will have had a chance to accept or reject the gospel. Not just in the current, under the current missionary program, but also when the servant begins to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, it'll be a worldwide preaching of the gospel. That time when the hunters go out, remember? <clears throat> Verse 6, Jehovah has a sword that shall engorge with blood, and glut itself with fat, the blood of lambs and he goats, the kidney fat of rams. For Jehovah will hold a slaughter in Basra, an immense massacre in the land of Edom. Among them shall fall buffalo, bulls, and steers. Their land shall be saturated with blood, their soil enriched with fat. Now Edom was a cat, was cattle country. Uh, the people of Edom were cattle raisers. And so he used that imagery to signify the, the, the slaughter of the world's wicked people. But notice the lambs, he goats, rams, and so forth, the bulls, the buffalo, and the steers, they're all kosher animals. So what does that tell you? It implies that they, that they could be people of the covenant. Not the non-kosher animals, not the Gentiles, necessarily. It's telling you, that, I mean, not including them, but it's telling you these are also covenant people, those who are cut off from among the covenant, the people of the covenant, as Jesus speaks of in 3 Nephi 21. And Isaiah, it's all through Isaiah as well. They're cut off. Take the word cut off 
um, and it gives you a definition of who's cut off in that day. Verse 8, for it is Jehovah's day of vengeance, the year of retribution on behalf of Zion. This is also quoted in Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes in part in the synagogue in Nazareth and applies it to himself. But he skips the, the next part, which talks about the day of vengeance of our God, because it's really an end time scenario, but he applies the spiritual part of it to himself. But the scripture as a whole in Isaiah 61, in its context, in the full context of the chapter, is actually talking about the servant, the end time servant. Because there, it's the day, in the end time, it's when you have the day of vengeance. It didn't happen in Jesus' time. It is Jehovah's day of vengeance, the year of retribution on behalf of Zion. Edom's stream shall turn to lava, her earth into brimstone, her land shall become as burning pitch. Well, in other words, a Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall ascend forever, it shall remain a wasteland from generation to generation. Throughout endless ages, none shall traverse it. Well, you wouldn't want to go there where nuclear bombs had fallen or something, you know. Um, but also, that's not the point. The point is that it's, there, there are areas that will be kind of designated as areas of the worst destruction to, as a memorial against those people for those who lived through the millennial age. Because at the end of the millennial age, there's going to be another test. And there, if the people haven't learned the lesson from, from before, from the our day, then they're going to be caught out of, you know, off guard again. The earth will go into a terrestrial condition or state through the millennial age, and at the end of the millennial age, into a celestial state. So if you're not a celestial person by then, you know, you'll have to go somewhere else again. Charles Evans. Earthquakes rent the earth in vast, chias, in vast chasms which engulf multitudes. Terrible groanings and wailings fill the air. Where have we seen that? Among the Nephites, right? So think of that now as something that's waiting to happen here. For the same reasons, of course. The shrieks of the suffering were indescribably awful. Waters rushed in from the tumultuous ocean whose very roaring under the mad rage of fierce cyclones was unendurable to the air. Cities were carried away in an instant. How do you do that? You know, what, what, what it says here, missiles were hurled through the atmosphere at terrible velocity and people were carried upward only to fall. So that's what also Spencer sees when a nuclear war is launched upon this nation. Islands appeared where ocean waves once tossed the gigantic steamer. Spencer sees that also, remember? After the earthquake in the western United States, the islands appeared there. It was, the, the country was split up. Islands, um, in other parts, voluminous flames emanating from vast fires rolled with fearful philosophy, destroying life and property in their destructive course. Seems like all hell breaks loose on the earth at this time, both from what we are doing to ourselves and also from possibly from outer space, like as in the Sodom Gomorrah destruction. The seal of the dread menace of despair was stamped on every human visage. Men fell exhausted, appalled, and trembling. Every element of agitated nature seemed a demon of wrathful fury. 
dense clouds, blacker than midnight, obscured the sunlight with a thunder that reverberated with intonations which shook the earth. Darkness reigned unrivaled and supreme. Well, like the three days of darkness, we have a type and shadow in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon as a whole is a type and shadow of our day. They wrote less than a hundredth part, only those things that typified our day, which they saw in vision. They used Isaiah's you know, criteria for doing that. From Isaiah. Lo, Jehovah will lay waste the earth and empty it. He will disfigure its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be with priest as with people, with master, with master as with servant, with mistress as with maid, with seller as with buyer, with borrower as with lender, with debtor as with creditor. When the earth is sacked, it shall be utterly ravaged. Jehovah has word, given word concerning it. So, when this happens, you can't say, oh, stop everything. I'm going to repent now. You know, it's not going to happen. It's too late. So, if you're prepared, you need not fear. So, it's the time to, to repent, the time to prepare, the time to return to our God, to recreate that relationship with Him that will ensure that we, we were clean before Him, we're clean in our physical bodies, we respect them as temples of God, we eat, we eat and drink only those things that nurture our bodies, that don't pollute our bodies, because then we're sabotaging the whole thing to begin with. We want to be pure enough to have the Spirit, to be worthy of the Spirit, to be worthy of the Spirit to a greater and greater degree, to be willing to go through our descent phases so that we can ascend to higher spiritual levels and be reborn closer to the image and likeness of God. So when this time comes, we're, we're not even there. We've been taken out. And, and we won't go through the scenario that's designed to, um, to bring the wicked to repentance. Verse 4, The earth shall pine away, the world miserably perish, the elite of the earth shall be made wretched. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, set it not the ancient covenant. The curse devours the earth for those who dwell on it have incurred guilt. Because of it, the population of the earth shall be diminished and little of mankind remain. Yes, like one tithe, a tithing, according to Isaiah's calculations. In chapter 6, verse 13, a tithe of the people. But it's close to home because it begins with us. Because we have transgressed the laws, changed your ordinance and set it not, we nullify the covenant of the Lord when we change things around and don't keep the covenant, the terms of the covenant. Then the covenant curses come our way. And if we don't repent when they come our way, then they keep coming until eventually there's a point of no return. And then it's the countdown. Then it's Isaiah's scenario. It hasn't started yet, fortunately. Verse 7, the new wine withers on languishing vines, making all the light-hearted lament. The rhythm of the drum ceases, the reveler's din stops, the pulsating of lyres comes to an end. We might say guitars in our day. Men no longer drink wine amid song. Liquor has turned bitter to drinkers. The towns of disorder are broken up. All houses are shuttered that none may enter. Outside is heard the clamor for wine. Though all joy has become gloom, the earth's vitality is gone. Imagine such a place. 
Imagine going through such a place. It's like Isaiah describes it as clear as day uh, when people are in that state. And some actually live through it, fortunately. They do repent. They do seek the Lord with all their hearts. It is a belated repentance, but the Lord accepts their repentance even then. And they wade through the time which serves to purify and cleanse them and sanctify them so that by the time the, the Lord's Day of Judgment is over, they, they too will have reached elect level. And that is the Lord's marvelous mercy. Havoc remains in the city. The, state, the gates lie battered to ruin. The city in Isaiah is a metaphor for, for Babylon. There's a city, there's two cities. There are two women and two covenants. There are... Um, there's the city of Zion and the city of Babylon, or the, the world at large is a city. There is the unfaithful wife and there is the, the faithful wife, the, the wife who repents and becomes the Lord's wife again in the end time. She renews her covenant with him. And there are two covenants, uh, the covenant, with, the covenant uh, of life and the covenant of death. And we'll be discussing that next time. And by the way, if you're not already enrolled in IsaiahReport.com, then please do. Register there and confirm your registration. It requires you to confirm it. So you kind of have to do it twice. And you'll be kept informed of anything that we have going on or any special deals like a Christmas sale or something like that. And we'll be having a class again starting in January. So we'll be listing that there as well. So that's IsaiahReport.com. And share it with your friends because we'll be having, continuing the webcasts so that more people can take advantage of it. Verse 17, Terrors and tra- pitfalls and traps await you, O inhabitants of the earth. Those who flee at the sound of terror shall fall into a pit, and those who get up from the pit shall be caught in a trap. For when the windows on high are opened, the earth shall shake to its foundations. Now, you know, you know, NASA people talk about when there's a window, they can send up their, their rockets through this window of time. And think of that, when the windows in higher open, only this time they're going to come down, not go up. Whether it's, you know, cosmic debris or whether it's weapons of mass destruction. The earth shall be crushed and rent. The earth shall break up and cave in. The earth shall convulse and lurch. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard sway back and forth like a shanty. Its transgressions weigh it down, and when it collapses, it shall rise no more. So the earth is going to go back into a state of chaos before it is recreated. So the Lord is going to bring a new creation out of this return to chaos. So it repeats, basically, the beginning in Genesis. Only the earth itself is not going to disintegrate, but its surface is going to disintegrate or its surface is going to be, you know, descend into chaos and be fractured and and so forth. And then the Lord is going to, you know, recreate it throughout so that it will remain such throughout the millennial age. And chapter 13 of Isaiah also talks about the earth being jolted out of place by the anger of the Lord of hosts in the day of his blazing wrath. So there you have the anger and the, the wrath which the king of Assyria personifies, the Lord is his instrument, 
and he is going to jolt the earth out of place with this horrible destructive uh, weaponry, not to mention cosmic interference. Isaiah 8.22, they will look to the land, so in this horrible state, worse than the depression, a thousandfold perhaps, they will look to the land, but there shall be a depressing scene of anguish and gloom, and thus they are banished into outer darkness. Now we have this idea in the church that outer darkness is when, you when the wicked die. No, not by the scriptural definition. It's in Isaiah that it's borrowed from. Outer darkness is this, this condition we've just discussed that Isaiah has been describing, when everything out there is gloom and doom for the wicked. And the wicked die in that state if they don't repent. It just, you know, it's part of their punishment for breaking the covenant, for foisting their oppression on other people, for all of the injustices that per they have perp perpetrated, for all the lusts and horrible things that they have committed, for the violations of people's innocence and all the rest of it. Now is the day of reckoning for them. And they're going to be made to feel it. And even if they die, they'll feel it on the other side of the veil. It doesn't go away. Charles D. Evans. Again the light shone, revealing an atmosphere tinged with a leaden hue, which was the precursor of an unparalleled plague, whose first symptoms were recognized by a purple spot which appeared on the cheek or on the back of the hand, and which invariably enlarged until it spread over the entire surface of the body, producing certain death. Mothers at the sight of it cast away their children as if they were poisonous reptiles. This plague in growing persons rotted the eyes from their sockets and consumed the tongue as would a powerful acid or an intense heat. Wicked men suffering under its writhing agonies cursed God and died while yet they stood on their feet and birds of prey feasted on their carcasses. Now how graphic is that? But it's also in Isaiah. It's mentioned in connection with the Assyrians, for example, when one of the Assyrian armies is, one of the two great Assyrian armies is destroyed, this happens to them. Remember that movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where that guy's, his face melts, you know. It sounds like an Ebola plague, yes. Or maybe, you know, a worse version of it. Yeah, but it sounds just like that. And of course, that's also what Spencer sees, right? He describes that very thing. And there are other visions and dreams that people have had that describe the same thing. You've seen them, haven't you? Some of them. Now, Isaiah talks about the scourge. That would be the scourge, no doubt. But the scourge is also the king of Assyria himself. It's, it's a code name or metaphor or an alias for the king of Assyria himself, who seems to be the perpetrator of this curse or the scourge or this um, horrible weapon of mass destruction. I will make justice the measure, righteousness the weight, because it hasn't been. There's been no justice and no righteousness, not by the Lord's standard. It's a make-believe righteousness we're living in. That's why this is coming. And he addresses, particularly, this is from chapter 28, addresses Ephraim and the leaders of Ephraim. He addresses them pointedly, specifically. And we discussed that in our first lecture where we had all the bad news at first. 
And in chapter 42, the servant is raised up to restore justice and righteousness, to bring justice and righteousness back to the earth. So people can get an idea of what justice is now and what righteousness is in our day and age. Because we have our own particular challenges that we have to live through, and just going to church is not, not a definition of righteousness. We can be deluding ourselves and deceiving ourselves by just going to church and thinking that it is. And if someone perpetuates that idea in us by making us believe that, then that is deception. You know what I'm saying? That is self-deception. It's perpetuating the deception. A hail shall sweep away your false refuge and waters flood the hiding place. <clears throat> the hail, again, is the king of Assyria. It's another metaphor for him. So he's the one that personifies these things and he also is the one that foists these things upon God's people. He's the Lord's instrument to bring them to justice. So... Your covenant with death shall prove void. Well, in chapters 28 through 31, the theme of those chapters is the Lord's covenant with death. Well, not the Lord's covenant, but the people's covenant with death, which they are making, instead of, instead of adhering to the Lord's covenant, a covenant of life, that's juxtaposed with it in chapter 51 through 59, you have these people um, following their own counsel and their own schemes against the counsel of the Lord. They get together and decide things like with committees, <laughs> I guess. And committees always have to compromise, right? And so it, it turns into just a little game. And so we all decide this, like the scholars concerning the book of Isaiah. The liberal scholars who, who constitute 90% of, of, of biblical scholarship, they decided that there's more than one Isaiah, there's two or even three Isaiahs, Ignoring totally the literary structure of the three different parts of Isaiah that are a literary structure, that it actually is a proof of the unity of the book of Isaiah. No, they decide together in their committees that there are more than one Isaiah because Isaiah could not possibly have seen beyond his own time because they're not, Isaiah is not that smart uh, because nobody can be smarter than, than the scholars are, right? So... So from then on, they all published the same thing, promoting this idea. And then, woe behold, any scholar, any conservative scholar, that publishes the idea of, a, of one Isaiah only, who saw to the end of time, he saw the time of Cyrus 180 years later and so forth. You know, So they persecute in their field the conservative scholars. And so you have this here, you have this this agreement among people who are the Lord's people, chapter 28, 28, addressed to Ephraim, who are covenanting with death. And we're going to discuss that from the point of view of somebody's vision next time. So, uh, it's, it's not very pretty, I'll warn you. Your covenant with death shall prove void because the Lord is going to, just, you know, he doesn't have any respect for that. Your understanding with Sheol shall have no effect when the flooding scourge sweeps through that you hope to avoid, you shall be overrun by it. So when this, you know, calamity happens, upon my house shall it begin, as Spencer sees, where does it begin? Right there. As often as it sweeps through, you shall be seized by it, as morning after morning it shall sweep through. 
by day and by night, it shall seize you, it shall cause terror merely to hear word of it. Because of all the dead and dying, the heaps of bodies, and so forth, and no place to bury them. And because they're contagious. So how are you going to escape this? I mean, do you have your anti-plague formula? Dr. Christopher had one, the herbalist. Um, are you living a you know a clean life so that your immune system is not compromised, so that you might catch this? Have you got your supply of garlic? <laughs> you know, I mean, there are all kinds of natural remedies that God has provided against pretty well any disease, any plague on the earth, not to mention righteousness, and his his your covenant with Him that. You know, that constrains him to protect you. Because if you are keeping the terms of the covenant and you are worthy on that spiritual level, he is bound by the terms of the covenant to protect you from this. So the people who are going through this are not the righteous. They're the wicked. Because the righteous, as we saw, are taken out before it happens. The most pure of the saints are secluded in a wilderness setting where the cloud of glory protects them from all the elements and from all these destructions. But you have to be sure that you, you know, qualify to go there. Because they don't just accept anybody there. And it's not just your temple recommend, I assure you. Then shall come to pass the proverb, the couch is too short to stretch out on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Well, I forgot to mention that in chapter in D and C eighty five, verse fifty eight, it's talking about taking the scriptures lightly. And if we take the scriptures lightly, particularly the Book of Mormon that it's talking about, then the Lord will have to send a scourge to you know to remind us. And um, so it shows that actually most of us are going to take the scriptures lightly and here's the scourge right here in, in, in um, these visions by Spencer and by um, Charles Evans and here it's mentioned in Isaiah 28 so the scourge is coming it's predicted we can stave it off and, and those who qualify to escape this will, will not be affected by it it's as simple as that Again, you have this idea of the Gentiles who harden their hearts and the Gentiles who repent and get their act together. The couch is too short to stretch out on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in, because it's a time of horrible deprivation. People have to resort to rags, and they'll go naked, because people strip them of their clothes. There will be bands out there grabbing those kinds of things. And... It's going to be an awful scenario. For Jehovah will rise up as he did on Mount Pratsim. That's when the Lord broke forth in the Sinai covenant upon the wicked, upon those who um, abused their privileges in the priesthood and also those who murmured. And they were swallowed up in the earth and the Lord broke forth upon them with his fire and consumed them. So we're going to see that again. Mount Pratsim means the mount of breaking forth. So this is not a happy scenario. And in parallel with it is he stirred to anger. It's a synonymous parallel, as in the Valley of Gibeon, 
In the Valley of Gibeon, the sun stood still while Joshua and his army slaughtered the Amalekites. Well, the sun didn't stand still, they just went into a different time zone. But to everybody else, it seemed like the sun stood still. They went into a terrestrial time zone. So they were able to accomplish, if ever you've had done time travel in a vision, then you know what it's talking about. Because you can be have an out-of-the-body experience, and in just a few seconds, have an experience that seemed like it covered weeks and months and years. And it was just a few seconds, or a few minutes. To perform his act, his unwanted act, to do his work, his bizarre work. Well, there are some who say in manuals and things that this is the Lord's great and marvelous work. Well, only look, if you look at the negative side of it, because the Lord's great and marvelous work is the restoration, by definition in the scriptures, not the restoration of the gospel and priesthood, it's the restoration of the house of Israel. And it has a twofold aspect. It's the deliverance of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. The same as... The destruction that happened in the days of the Nephites, when Christ, before Christ appeared to them, was called a great and marvelous destruction. It tells you that is a type of the great and marvelous work. The conversion of the Lamanites was called a great and marvelous work. So that's a type of the latter-day great and marvelous restoration of the house of Israel. So this is the negative side of it. This is the destruction of the wicked part of it. And it's... Uh, Anger is, again, a metaphor for the king of Assyria. So this is, this is a work he doesn't want to do, but he has to do it as a consequence of people's wickedness. And I have to remind you that the wicked get to that point where, that they start persecuting the righteous. And that is when this great reversal of circumstances happens. That is when the destruction of the wicked happens. When they get to the point that they persecute the righteous the saints, the holy ones, the persons on an elect level, then, as I mentioned before, and as Isaiah makes clear, the curses of the covenants of the elect come upon their enemies who attack them and destroy them. You see that scenario with Enoch's city. It's when the enemies came against them, that is when the destruction of the enemies happened. And it cannot happen until then. Which means that we have to rise to the, the level of God's elect through our righteousness, through the service and the suffering that we endure, that we render, um, to get to that point. So then we become untouchable, as it were, because the Lord is going to defend us. And this is what happens to those who persecute us. And, and near the end of the book of Isaiah, you see that great polarization of the righteous and the wicked. Both come to a head. And then we read that verse about the servants being blessed on the one hand, they being cursed. They being blessed with this blessing, and they being cursed with that curse. And that's where it ends. And those ones that did the persecution, they're out of here. They won't even have any remembrance on the earth anymore, Isaiah says. The whole remembrance of them will be taken from the earth. Root and branch. No posterity, no ancestry that will claim them. To perform his act, his unwanted act, to, and do his work, his bizarre work. That side of the work. Now therefore scoff not, lest your bands grow, bonds grow severe, for I have heard utter destruction decreed by my Lord Jehovah of hosts upon the whole earth. There's a correction. Um, it was DNC 84, verse 58, about the scourge. 
And the ones cut off neither root nor branch are the sons of perdition. Correction. That's an, uh, the end of Isaiah chapter 13, I believe. A foreign power had inroaded the nation, Charles E. Evans. And from every human indication, it appeared as if it would seize the government and supplant it with a monarchy. I stood trembling at the aspect when a power arose in the West which declared itself in favor of the Constitution in its original form. To this suddenly rising power, every lover of constitutional rights gave hearty support. The struggle was fiercely contested, but the stars and stripes <clears throat> floated in the breeze and bidding liberty to all waved proudly over the land. Among the many banners, I saw one inscribed thus, the government based on the Constitution now and forever. On another, there was liberty of conscience, and there were several others, both religious and political. We can already see the beginnings of, of this in attempts to set up a one-world government and those who would try to implement that taking sole control of, of the nation, <clears throat> the idea of a king in the land, and then um, the out, you know, the boys from the mountains that, uh, spoken of in teachers of the prophet Joseph Smith, is it or is it in the, the White Horse prophecy? White Horse prophecy. Thank you. Um, this is something that Spencer does not see because he's not involved in it, but Isaiah does see it because it is um, it is actually the Ephraimites who are instrumental also in thwarting this power uh, that. Is, has taken over the land. And of course the Constitution has been whittled down and there are those who claim now since the United Nations we have an agreement with America has an agreement with the United Nations that the uh, Constitution is no longer relevant. From Isaiah we have the king of Assyria, the rod of his anger. So that's the foreign power or the alliance of nations that invades the land. And the Lord sends him, the Lord empowers him to do that. Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, he's a staff, my wrath in their hand. So he's the anger, he's the rod, he's the staff, he's the wrath, and the Lord's left hand, the hand of punishment. I will commission him against the godless nation. That's the nation of God's own people. Appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. Mud is a chaos motif, so he basically, you know, uh, renders them into, into a chaotic state or into a non-entity. Nevertheless, it shall not seem so to him, this shall not be what he has in mind. His purpose shall be to annihilate and to exterminate nations, not a few. In other words, to depopulate the world because there are too many people on the earth. They can't control them all, so we have to get rid of them and... We can control them better. That's their agenda. You know that's their agenda. See, their stalwarts sob in public. So those, there are peacemakers who try to ameliorate the situation, but they don't have any luck either. The champions of peace weep bitterly. The highways are desolate. Travel is at an end because of the huge destruction that happens. The treaties have been violated. First of all, treaties have been made, like in the book of Daniel. They speak lies at one table, making a treaty, the king of the north and the king of the south, but it's just a lie. It's not true. Whatever treaty is made, don't believe it. One has one agenda, the other one has another agenda entirely. 
their signatories held in contempt, man is disregarded, or mankind or humanity is, is nothing to them. The land lies withered and forlorn. The land is the promised land. In this case, it's us. Lebanon wilts shamefully. Sharon has been turned into, into a dry waste. Bashan and Carmel are denuded. It's interesting how this configuration of land of Israel anciently uh, has its parallel in the Rocky Mountains and the great Midwest Plains and the, uh, what's the, the mountain range in the east? Appalachians, yeah. Thank you. In that day, Jehovah of hosts will be as a crown of beauty and a wreath of glory to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who repulse the attack at the gates. And this is also chapter 28 addressed to Ephraim. So you know that it's, it's again, it's the Ephraimites who save the day. They're actually the cause of the problem, but they also save the day. A remnant of them. And they fight. And this is not seen in Spencer's vision, but um, Charles Evans saw it, right? The struggle was fiercely contested, but the stars and stripes floated in the breeze. Your sons, from 49, Isaiah 49. Your sons shall hasten your ravagers away. Those who ruined you shall depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around you. With one accord they gather and come to you. As surely as I live, says Jehovah, you shall adorn yourself with them all as with jewels. Bind them on you as does a bride. Now this scripture is talking about the sons and daughters of, of the Lord and it identifies the elect category of God's people. The son-servant category, one of the seven categories of people in the book of Isaiah, spiritual categories. And the sons and daughters of the Lord are those that are gathered by the kings and queens of the Gentiles. Chapter 48, 49 also, verse 22. That is the house of Israel. That is the elect who come out of the house of Israel and form the new Zion. Form Zion in our day and age. It's never established among the Latter-day Saints, but we help them establish it. We help the House of Israel to establish it. In other words, it's not established among the Gentiles. And they're jewels because that is a precious category of, of, uh, of stones, as distinct from semi-precious and common stones which signify terrestrial and telestial categories. It's the way Isaiah differentiates different spiritual categories. And the bridal imagery is the great marriage supper of the Lamb, or the equivalent. Charles Evans, the light of the gospel, which had but dimly shone because of abominations, now burst forth with a luster that filled the earth. Cities appeared in every direction, one of which was in the center of the continent. Well, Jackson County, Missouri, no doubt. It was an embodiment of architectural science after the pattern of eternal perfection. Because what is above is also created now below, but actually the earth is ascending to the next highest level, and so here now we're entering a new realm or a new um, layer. We're entering a new uh, sphere of, of glory, a higher one. It was an embodiment of the architectural science after the pattern of eternal perfection. Its towers glittered with a radiance emanating from the sparkling of emeralds, rubies, diamonds, and other precious stones set in a canopy of gold. 
and so elaborately and skillfully arranged as to shed forth a brilliancy which dazzled and enchanted the eye. It excited admiration and developed a taste for the beautiful beyond anything man had ever conceived. Fountains of crystal water shot upwards through transparent jets, which in the brilliant sunshine formed 10,000 rainbow tints at once. You know, people who have had out-of-the-body experiences have seen these. And it's not just a telestial glory now, because they see many more colors, even co you know, basic colors. What, do, what are they called? Um, primary colors. Yeah, they see those. They see many more of them, up to 40, I, I read somewhere, in a near-death experience. And so when it says 10,000 rainbow tints at once, you know, it's talking about something like that that we've never experienced in this realm before. So delightful to the eye. Gardens, the perfection of whose arrangement confound all our present attempts at such genius, were bedecked with flowers to develop and refine the taste and strengthen man's love for these nature's choices endowments. Wow. Well, that's... Isaiah describes that too, but, you know, this is, you know, more in detail. Nations will come to your light. Here are some of it. They are kings to the brightness of your dawn. These are the kings and queens of the Gentiles now bringing the house of Israel, bringing the sons and daughters of the Lord, the elect of God, the angels of God, bringing the elect, as Jesus says in Matthew 24. People on a translated level bringing people on a son-servant level. They are kings to the brightness of your dawn, the dawn of the millennial age, the age of peace. Lift up your eyes and look about you. They have all assembled to come to you. Your son shall arrive from afar. Your daughter shall return to your side. Now, this Spencer saw this in great detail, at least the parts that he was involved in. Then when you see it, this is the woman Zion now, your face will light up. Your heart will swell with awe. The multitude of the sea shall resort to you. A host of nations shall enter you. A myriad of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All from Sheba will come, bearing gold and frankincense, and heralding the praises of Jehovah. Well, of course, this is literal, but also metaphorical of people, right? The gold and frankincense would be the elect, too, in a way. The typical elect, the jewels. Now we're talking about precious metals, and precious things. And the dromedaries and the animals themselves are people. All Kedar's flocks will gather to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They shall be accepted as offerings on my altar. And thus will I make glorious my house of glory. So these kings and queens of the Gentiles are bringing their offerings. And what are they bringing? They're bringing the elect of the house of Israel as their offerings. That's where he says in Isaiah 52 that they, they bring... They bring the house of Israel as vessels, as the ancient Israelites brought vessels to the house of the Lord, vessels of offerings. It's also in chapter 66 of Isaiah. The splendor of Lebanon shall become yours, cypresses and pines and firs together, to beautify the site of my sanctuary, to make glorious the place of my feet, where the Lord comes down in the center stake of Zion. The sons of those who tormented you will come bowing before you. All who reviled you will, fall, will prostrate themselves at your feet. They will call you the city of Jehovah, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You mean, you mean some of your persecutors are still going to have children? And yes, because those, as Spencer sees in his vision, that those very armies that come against you, some of them will be converted to you. 
they'll see that what they're doing is wrong. And they'll see that what you have is good and they want to be part of it. So some of them do anyway. Although you had been forsaken and abhorred, think of now of the house of Israel, the natural branches. The Jews who've been forsaken and abhorred by the world. And all the pogroms and persecutions, inquisitions and holocausts that they have suffered at the hands of the Gentiles, at the hands of Christians, in the name of Jesus. What do you think they think of Jesus now? having suffered at the hands of Christians. To, that, to them, they're all the same. They're all Christians. And think of the ten tribes, where they are, and all of the oppressed communities that have maintained their ethnic integrity and the Lamanites of this country, how they have been oppressed and persecuted and harassed and destroyed. And now, after having been forsaken and abhorred, now there is a complete reversal between them and and those who persecuted them and abhorred them and forced injustices upon them. With none passing through your land, through your reservations, wherever you were exiled, yet will I make you an everlasting pride, the joy of generation after generation. So, you know, when you minister to these people, <clears throat> when you minister to people, when the missionaries minister to people, you have to see that these are God's children in their lost and fallen state, in their decrepit state, in their addictions, in their worst case situations that they could get into. You have to still see them as God's children and see what they might be in their full stature as children of God, in His image and likeness, so that when you minister to them, you minister to them in such a way that they themselves start believing that. So then they have something to live up to. Because believe me, they will be glorious, the glorious people. They will be men of Israel and stand in their full stature, and we will almost worship them. In place of copper, I will bring gold. In place of silver, iron, silver. In place of wood, I will bring copper. In place of stones, iron. Well, you know, that is true. That is literal. That now these things are precious, copper and iron and wood, but it's all going to go up a level to a higher spiritual vibration. So now we're, you know, we're going to have more of the precious things because now it's the elect of God that are, that are now the main part of society. I will make peace your rulers and righteousness your oppressors. So there are no more oppressors. There are no more rulers who we have to distrust and just disbelieve everything they say because you know whatever they say is a lie. You don't have to worry about that anymore. From now on, it's the peace that passes all understanding. It's, it's the righteousness in all its ramifications, in, in all its the possibilities, in all its innocence and purity. Tyranny shall no more be heard of in your land, nor dispossession or disaster within your borders, as it is now, you will regard salvation as your walls and homage as your gates. Because the Lord is there and He personifies salvation. And He's your protection. He's there right in the midst of you. You're conscious of His presence all the time. Not like now, we're only sometimes conscious. But please, develop that consciousness of Him so that you can walk with Him, so that you can have this even now. 
as we create it individually, the more of us do, then we're, le- we're reaching toward it. And then when we are reaching toward it, then the Lord reaches down to us and honors us. No longer shall the sun be your light by day, or the brightness of the moon your illumination at night. Jehovah will be your everlasting light, and your God your radiant glory. And you know that light permeates even nooks and crannies, so there's no, there's no shadows anymore. It's like Spencer sees in his vision. Because there's nothing dark anymore, it's all light now. Your sun shall set no more, nor your moon wane. To you, Jehovah, shall be an endless light when your days of mourning are fulfilled. So the descent phase has to be accomplished. We have to wade through it, and when we're willing to go through it, and then rise above it, and become empowered of Him, then we can inherit this. These are the most glorious promises in all the scriptures. Isaiah's are. These are His good news. Now the servant is also a light. Remember? Chapter 42 and 49, the Lord appoints him as a light to the nations. So in a way, he's kind of like the dawning of the millennium. You know, when, when, when the dawn happens, you see, the, you see the light coming above the horizon. That's like the servant beginning his mission to the earth. It's a new dawn. And there are some who want to just, you know, go back to the darkness, but He's, he's irresistible. He's the, Lord, the Lord empowers him. And, and nobody can thwart the Lord's work through him. So he's a light. He personifies this light. But he's a lesser light compared to the Lord. He's the greater light. So when the sun rises above the horizon, that's when the millennium begins, so to speak. That's why Isaiah begins with chapter 60 as a new dawn. While the rest of the world is still in darkness. Expand the side of your tent, extend the canopies of your dwellings, chapter 54. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring shall dispossess the nations and resettle the desolate cities. Well, no doubt a lot of those cities will be destroyed and rebuilt, but according to a divine architecture, according to a terrestrial technology and architecture. Well, that's what Charles Evans saw. He saw this glorious age spread all over the world. And Spencer saw it also, as stakes of Zion, in his vision. <clears throat> Schools and universities were erected to which all had access. In the latter, urims were placed for the study of the past, present, and future, and for obtaining a knowledge of heavenly bodies and of the constitu- construction of worlds and universes. The inherent properties of matter its arrangements, laws, and mutual relation were revealed and taught and made plain as the primary lesson of a child. The conflicting theories of geologists regarding the foundation and age of the earth were settled forever. All learning was based on eternal certainty. Angels brought forth the treasures of knowledge which had lain in the midst of the dumb, distant past hidden from the world. Yes, in, in comparison to that day and age, ours are is indeed a dumb and distant past. It's, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. The, you know, there are many now touting scriptures from Isaiah as if they're experts, you know. And they're just barely new to it. It's sad, but it, it's also kind of funny because 
there is so much more to Isaiah, and somebody latches on to a particular part of Isaiah and runs with it, you know, and, and you know, you see they go off on a tangent. Uh, and the servant is John the Revelator, and the servant is Joseph Smith, or the servant is Christ. And they just don't get it. It's all, it's all just confusion. Because a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. They've run with a little knowledge. And they want to feel they're important or something. I don't know what their motives are, but some people buy into it. And it just creates more confusion. It's a good thing people are talking about the servant. Yes, because if people are not exercising faith in the servant, then he's not going to come either. Because people had to be exercising faith before something, before the Lord can do something, right? Mormon says, Moroni says that. People were exercising faith that Jesus could come, then he came in the time of Christ. And so it's good, but we have to get our facts straight. We have to have a little, little bit more of a humble approach and say, well, let's really learn this. I'm telling you, it takes about two years of diligent study. Right, Matt? And others who've, you know, who've done this. And um, you can't just jump into it with both feet and tread where angels fear to tread. And because you are going to be held responsible for the confusion that you're spreading. So first get it right. Because the Lord will judge you. So there are conflicting theories about this and about many things. They're all going to be straightened out someday. In the millennial age. Isaiah 11, 9, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of Jehovah as the oceans are overspread with waters. Well, not just knowledge about Jehovah, but knowledge of Jehovah personally. And also knowledge of all that he's done and created. You'll be able to see all the works that he's done. Like it says that if we had a knowledge of all the works, the great and marvelous works that the Lord had performed, there would not be enough books to fill the universe, right? So we have a lot to learn. That, that too is the knowledge of Jehovah. And John the Revelator who wrote that no doubt saw, saw that because he was a translated being. So he could say that. And I've heard Catholic priests say, oh, that's just nonsense. You know. <laughs> well, you think you know so much. Well, shut up already because you don't know very much at all. <laughs> so the fact is, this knowledge of God is just like exponential. The more you learn, the more there is to learn and realize. So n never ever claim that you know very much. You know, we hardly know anything. And even this, this is the prelude to the millennium. Isaiah, the sealed books that are coming forth that predict the end time are just a prelude to, you know, to help us get our acts together, to help us to take ownership of this and live it and become it, and become what the Lord, what we can become, what the Lord would expect us to become. Knowledge will be on a whole different footing in that millennial age. After seeing these things and gazing once more upon the beautiful city, the following sounded in my ears, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Well, I think it would be really cool to live there, you know. Remember that there's two scenarios going on, like Spencer saw. He saw a parallel scenario going on in Jerusalem. 
all Jerusalem among the Jews or in Israel. And now with these blood moons, I expect that things are going to, you know, go into a higher gear over there and here because the blood moons are, are visible in this country, right? Behold, Zion, the city of our solemn assemblies, Isaiah 33, 20. Let your eyes rest upon Jerusalem, the abode of peace, an immovable tent whose stake shall never be uprooted nor any of its cords severed. Because a lot is moving and shaking before that time. Nations shall behold your righteousness and all their rulers your glory. You shall be called by a new name conferred by the mouth of Jehovah. So although there will be stakes of Zion all over the country and they will all be similar, there is one center place. And as it says in Isaiah, there will be pilgrimages to that center place throughout the millennial age. And those who don't come, upon them there will be no rain. And it's a Feast of Tabernacles and patterned after the ancient Feast of Tabernacles and the ancient Feast of uh, Passover. Rejoice then and be glad forever in what I create. I create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. So it's a new creation. He recreates us individually. He cre recreates his people as a nation and he recreates the earth as well. Because we're all made from the same stuff. We're all going through transitions. Even at the end of the millennium, the earth is celestialized. That's the end. So now we have time for questions. I promise you that. <laughs> okay. How can the elect be chosen? Well, uh, Spencer sees in his, his vision that they know exactly who to go to, those who are on the seraph level, our translated beings. So... The Lord has them hidden away. I think it's like the Holy Grail. He, he knows where his elect are. But I can tell you from Isaiah that they have to be on a seraph level. They have to be just men made, I mean, on an on a elect level, on the son-servant level. They have to be just men made perfect. So that's what the job of the 144,000 is, to bring as many as they can to the church of the firstborn. We've discussed that in, in this class already. Uh, that's in chapter 4 of Isaiah where the cloud of glory protects the people who are taken out, who are the congregations of Zion. And Spencer sees that where the cloud of glory protects. And you have that in the book of Exodus where the cloud of glory wrecks, divides the Egyptians from the house of Israel, from the people of Israel. So if you want to know more about it, um, we the scriptures are limited, you know, but you put the scenario together and you say that uh, there's a chapter in 26 of Isaiah also had talks about the, them being protected by the Lord's cloud. So I don't know that you can you know, describe very much more than what the scriptures say. You can speculate, but if you can't sh say, show it, don't say it, right? So, um, How do I know about the servant was an epiphany when I came to realization. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, there was an epiphany, or not really, just a discovery. I don't think you can call it epiphany with me. I would discover a, a new evidence, as I mentioned here in class once before, and have to totally revamp my previous thinking about Isaiah. But when I 
when I saw that the terms servant and son, both of them define a vassal status, a vassal status to an, toward an emperor who's called the lord and father. So you have a father-son, lord-servant relationship between an emperor and a vassal, and that when that vassal-emperor relationship, I saw, you know, I was taught that in, um, in Toronto, the School of Theology there, Wycliffe College, by a Catholic priest who introduced me to the, to the ancient or eastern emperor-vassal paradigm that governs all of Hebrew prophetic thinking in God's relationship with his people and with King David and his heirs. So when I saw that, that the two terms together, like as King Ahaz makes himself the Lord, uh, the king of Assyria's servant and son in Second Kings. So those two terms together define the vassal relationship. So then it made me realize that in chapter 9, where to us a son is born, to us, what, from to us the child is born, a son is given. That that is uh, commonly, which is commonly attributed to the birth of Christ, is actually speaking about the servant. It has to. And then you have Isaiah's seven-part structure does that structurally as well. So that was kind of an epiphany you can call it that. But mainly it's just analyzing and analyzing and analyzing until there's nothing more to analyze, so to speak. And it's all so coherent, it's such a tight case. So people who take things out of context and say, oh no, that's Christ, and, and just don't want to know anything different, you know, they're just depriving themselves of, of what Isaiah is saying, and they're taking it lightly because Isaiah shows it. He always has more than one evidence for it. And there's, there's a very tight case because there are five things connected with the servant in one part of the, the book of Isaiah where it's talking about the servant and those same five events, a new Passover, a new wandering in the wilderness, a new inheritance of the land, a new conquest, that appear in both sides. So, it, so in context, the sun phase in Isaiah 9, in the context of those chapters, it's the same five themes that are the same five themes over here in connection with the servant. And, the, and then there are word links between the two. So you have both structures, typologies, and word links that make it indissoluble evidence. And so it's incredible. People who want to you know, stay with the old idea of um, Handel's Messiah, fine, but nobody else in the scriptures quotes Isaiah 9 in support of Christ. Matthew would have if it did. He would have been the first one to jump on that, as he does with other scriptures that prove Christ. Not so. Besides, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's King Hezekiah's enthronement ceremony. And that's another whole thing. As we saw earlier, your sons shall hasten your ravagers away, Isaiah said. Remember that scripture? Your sons shall hasten your ravagers away. And those who oppressed you... Or, will depart from you. So the word sons is a word link, again, to the sons and daughters of category of God's people, which are the elect. So it is the elect who, who, who do that. It's not the Mexicans coming or the blacks or somebody. It's when God's people are empowered, then they are going to hasten all the non-Israelite entities out of here the ones who are fighting against Zion. 
And you see that in 35, 16 and also 20, doesn't it? Where Jesus quotes Micah. Yeah, he's quoting Micah 5. Yeah. Well, Micah has his own internal reality. And Isaiah has his. So if he's quoting like a line upon them, well, that's, you know, <laughs> that... So confine that to Isaiah. Confine, yeah, can, let's stay with Isaiah here. From Isaiah, it is the sons and daughters of God, people in that category who are the elect, who are coming out from all directions. The Spencer sees, basically, the ten tribes. So you can, and other people have seen the ten tribes coming and actually um, fighting against the enemies of God's people. Actually, in wars, but he only sees a little bit of that because the whole war scenario is not in Spencer's book, but it is in Isaiah. It's under the new conquest led by the, the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant leads the new conquest, and the new conquest is the conquest, the reconquest of the world from the Assyrians who have conquered it. <clears throat> so first of all, the Assyrian alliance conquers the world, and then the armies of the servant, like the armies of Joshua, reconquer the earth from the Assyrians. And then, the, then they divide up the earth and apportion it, as Joshua did the promised land, to the Lord's covenant peoples. The, it happens in, where it says in the Book of Mormon that when the great and abominable church, whom many of the apostates of our people join and f to fight against Zion, when the power of God comes down upon the saints, that's, the, that's those Gentiles who repent, and upon the covenant people of the Lord. Those covenant people of the Lord are the elect who are then gathered. That's when they are empowered, when they become God's elect, or when they are led by God's. There could be terrestrial armies led by celestial you know, leaders, captains. It's another possibility. Because that's another way of expiating your iniquities, is to defend, to defend freedoms, is to fight wars against the enemy, to defend yourself. And through, through fighting those wars, you're like the sons of uh, Helaman, through fighting those wars, they change from boys to men, from, 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 from young people, sons, to, you know, to, to being valiant in the testament of Jesus. So that was part of their spiritual progression also. Someone's asking if Obama's the Antichrist. You know, I don't want to go there, but <laughs> that's not something we want to uh, promote in this class. So, um, but you go to, you know, Egypt and America, the Pharaoh, and see what it says about the dragon who's the, uh, the Pharaoh, you know both in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, verses 9 through 11. In the book of Ezekiel, look up under dragon, king, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then, then go to the book of Revelation. It pretty well tells you all you need to know. Yeah, the, the Muslims believe that um, you know, that's sacred to them because they believe that that's where Abraham offered Ishmael, not Isaac. And they really believe that. So it always goes back to the birthright over birthright issues, the feud between the two. Of course, many so-called Arabs are also actually descendants of Jews. So, 
They're all children of Abraham who are eventually going to live in peace together. But um, Mount Moriah was also the place where, where Jesus was, died on the cross because Golgotha was part of Mount Moriah before a quarry was made separating it from the current Temple Mount. And you, you go to Golgotha and you can see where the, where the quarry was, was, where the limestone was quarried out to make that road by the Damascus Gate there that separates Mount Moriah from, from, the, from Golgotha, which is now a Muslim cemetery. But, the, but uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith predicted that, that the mosque would have to be moved out of the way for the temple to be rebuilt on its original site. So how is that going to happen? Now there is the controversy over the Temple Mount seems now to be coming to a head. And now with the blood moons and so forth, I expect there's going to be some resolution to that, hopefully. Or some kind of thing that decides it once and for all. I'm hoping for that. And, and that could be the case. Because the Lord is not going to allow this forever, this conflict to go on and on and on. He brings things to a head and then there's a, there's a re resolution. And the resolution may not be the final solution, but at least it's, it takes things on a new path to where the Jews are empowered, they'll build their temple, and the enemies will come against them, and then it takes another turn, you know. It keeps on going that way. The difference between the good watchman and the bad watchman, well, we covered that already, I think, pretty well in our first lesson, wasn't it? The good watchmen come along when the servant comes along. The other watchmen are the watchmen who are not watching, really, and who are the blind watchmen. Go to Isaiah 28 about Ephraim, or go to Isaiah 56 and read it for yourselves. And to the covenanters in Egypt, which is America, according to America, when things get really bad and people go into, into a bondage state, or a state of slavery, basically, the Lord answers their appeal for a savior and he sends them a savior. That savior is a word link to the savior in the book of Isaiah, the servant. And we, we covered that already in Isaiah, I mean in uh, DNC 103, 15 through 20, one likened to Moses leads the saints back to Jackson County out of bondage. So there you have it. But he's also, <coughs> he's also over, the, you know, over the gathering of all of the house of Israel from all over the, from all over the world. He's the new Moses of the end time. He's not the one likened to Moses, but he is a new Moses because Jesus calls him so in, or treats him as thus in 3 Nephi 21 because he says that the words of Christ that the servant brings forth, those who will not believe them will be cut off among my people. We've done even as Moses said. So how clear is that? And DNC 103 is one, led by one likened to Moses and it's not Christ. So... How do we remove iniquities that are passed on to us that are dysfunctional patterns from the past generations or ones that we ourselves have generated? <clears throat> do what Abraham did and take ownership of them and repent and repent and repent. And take ownership of them and sacrifice your all to the Lord and he'll take you through your descent phase to where you come out of it at the other end, a new creature, and you release your, your ancestors from those iniquities that they've passed on to you. That's huge. Be one of those transition persons. That's what Abraham was. We discussed that also in class already. 
where Abraham in inherited basically a dysfunctional, you know, life. His father was an idolater. They were worshipping, there was a satanic cult already in his society. And he took ownership of it, and the Lord took him through these series of steps. Once he committed himself to the Lord to do that, and then the Lord required this, all these sacrifices of him, his life, his wife, and his only begotten son by Sarah. He didn't know if he'd get any of them back, but to that degree is what he sacrificed. Literally, not knowing he'd get them back. It was a complete sacrifice of each of those things, and that is what is required for us to break out of it. And from then on, it was the blessings of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So take ownership of it and repent. Get a new definition of repentance for yourself, right? Find out what repentance really means. Well, if this nation is Egypt, then Isaiah says it will survive. That at the end of chapter 19, which is about Egypt, Egypt becomes my people, my covenant people. We, we did that in class, and we recorded that scripture. <clears throat> there were three entities that correspond with the three branches of the house of Israel. Assyria, the work of my hands, which would be remnants of the ten tribes. Egypt, my people, which would be descendants of Lehi in this land, and us who are part of them, become part of them. And Egypt, my people, my covenant people, and Israel, <coughs> excuse me, Israel, my inheritance. And that will be the Jews, the third natural branch. Three natural branches now, but they also inherit those parts of the earth to which they were um, sent or exiled. That, that they become their promised lands. Right? This is the promised land of the sons of Lehi. Right? Well, the ten tribes also inherit the latter-day Assyria, all the north countries, they will inherit that, as their end time was their uh, millennial inheritance. And the Jews will inherit the Middle East, and possibly Africa. So, pretty well, the whole house of Israel will end up occupying the entire earth. Well, there were also many Jewish communities that migrated to, uh, to Africa. They went through, at the time of Lehi, they went through Yemen, and took ships down to the east coast of Africa. And there are Jewish communities there, they've discovered, that have more genes of the Levites and Aaronites than, than the ones that came from Europe, than the Jews that came from Europe. And they, but they're blacks. They're total blacks. So they're in Africa too. That's part of their exile land. Okay? I never go into timelines and predictions and that of dates <laughs> that will get you off the deep end and, and don't do that because because you get fixated on those things and then you get disillusioned and the best defense against that is to just like, like our prophets tell us you know focus on repenting and, and, and your righteousness become more and more righteous so that you you know are worthy of these protections do what you know to do today, and the rest will just unfold. But trying to force things about timelines and dates, and, oh, I've got to get ready because in three and a half years from now, this is going to happen. No, it doesn't work that way. Because in the very act of doing what you think you're doing, you're probably going to sabotage it. 
in the process. No, do what you know to do today as the Lord shows you, and then things will just evolve and open up naturally. This concludes Lecture 6, America the Beautiful. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.